today we are starting a two-week series that we do every year called My Most Important Question, or MMIQ, if you're cool. Um, we do this every year. This is one of my favorite series um, that we do each year. Um, and so I think the, the idea of this, of, of all of us having a, mo a most important question, or many most important questions, um, has sort of stemmed from this, this spot where I think um, a lot of times with faith and with church, I think uh, the expectation feels like we're asked to leave our questions at the door in order to come in, in order to um, be a part of the community, in order to, um, to be engaged with our faith. And um, that is, that's, not, that's not what we do around here. Um, faith, I think, is not, it's not this like singular, solitary destination. We're always arriving somewhere in faith. We're always moving. Um, we're always growing. We're always changing. Um, and that's right. And so at Christ City, um, I mean, for me, I, I have found Christ City to be a place um, where I have wrestled with my deepest questions. Um, and that has actually deepened my faith and not quenched it. Um, and so each year we do this series where um, several of our friends here in the community come up and share their most important question. Um, and I think it's, it's in this, this similar vein of the man in Mark 9 who, uh, whose son uh, Jesus wants to heal, but the man says to Jesus, like, I, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That's, that's the, the lifeblood of this series um, and of these questions it's this paradox of faith where there's these things that we know and that we like cling to and then there are things we don't know yet and might not ever know um but we still live in that and we still engage with it and we don't run from them um so this sunday and next sunday we're going to have a total of six uh, people from our community they're going to be sharing one of their most important questions um, and how they have or are certainly still um, wrestling with that question. So I want to introduce you to, uh, to our three speakers today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce all three of them, um, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then they're going to come up and just share their questions and their stories one after the other. So we have three people today. This is so exciting. Um, the first person is Atrish Chang. Um, she moved to D.C. in 2017. She's been attending Christ City since shortly after arriving in the city. Uh, one of my favorite people and a valuable member of our choir. Um, besides <laughs> that, right? Um, besides D.C., she's also lived in um, Philly and San Diego in Berkeley, California, and in the Boston area. Um, some important things to know about Atris um, is that her dad made her name up. Uh, she loves the color purple. And for her, ice cream, chocolate, or a combination of both is never a bad idea. Um, so that's Atris. She'll come up first. Um, next is Angel Scroggins. Um, Angel is a native Washingtonian. She's been here all of her life. Um, she is mother to the Scroggins kids, which most of you know and love. Um, they're around. Um, she is currently a student at UDC. She's been um, coming to Christ City for about three years, um, and I and I was kind of like, what do you you know what do you spend most of your time doing? And I was like, oh no, you're a student at UDC, and you have kids. Cool. Um, so Angel's going to come share with us this morning, too. 
And then um, finally, David Nishizaki is going to share with us. So him and his wife, Aliyah, have lived in D.C. and been a part of Christ City for um, just over a year. They moved um, from California, where they both grew up. They both work for a missions organization called Envision, and they moved to D.C. to work on creating ministry opportunities and missions for people in the deaf community. So these are the three that are going to share their stories today. Um, I'm going to pray for them, and then I'm going to invite actress to come up. Will you pray with me? God, thanks so much for um, holy space in regular space, like a cafeteria. Thank you for um, a community of people um, so that we don't have to be alone in the ways that we, um, that we walk through hard things, that we ask hard things of you and of ourselves and of each other. I ask God that you would, um, that you would open our hearts and open our ears this morning. Um, to certainly receive from you, to recognize your spirit, God, and also to um, to learn from these our friends who um, are sharing their stories and sharing their questions, um, that we would all know what it is to, to walk with you a little bit more as human beings. Um, I pray for Atris and for Angel and for David as they come this morning. God, I pray that you would, um, even now, be settling peace in their hearts with your spirit. Thank you for... Um, their stewardship of their lives and their stories and your movement in their life. We are grateful. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Happy National Ice Cream Day. Um, so my name is Atris Chang, and I am so honored to be sharing with you today. So I ask questions often to many people, and I ask a lot of them. Check with anyone in my small group. Shout out to the nerds. And they will confirm but today, my most important question is, what if I fail? So there are a lot of you out there that I've never had the pleasure of meeting. So one, please come meet me after service. And two, to quickly introduce myself, the 30-second geographically-based version of my story goes like this. I grew up in a small town outside of Boston, Massachusetts, the third of four girls born to parents who had immigrated from their native Taiwan. Um, after a childhood of what I can only describe as sheltered bliss, I headed out to UC Berkeley for college, go Bears, um, then spent a few years working in San Diego, where my parents currently live, before attending graduate school in Philadelphia, and then finally moving here to DC in September of 2017. So growing up, doing well in school was always really important to me. Um, from an early age, the value of excellence was instilled, but I quickly ran away with it and even after the external pressures had subsided, I had internalized um, that anything less than the best was unacceptable. So one time in my 10th grade geometry class, I got a test back and it was the lowest test score I'd ever received by a margin of probably 25 points. To say I was devastated would be an understatement. I burst immediately into tears and so worried my teacher that she pulled me out of my next class to walk me around the outdoor track and reassure me that truly life would go on. <laughs> she also apparently notified my guidance counselor, a man who I had never had a conversation with, um, and he called me into the, his office the next day for a very awkward exchange of much feet shuffling and stilted reassurances that, yes, I was okay, and of course I would let him know if I needed anything else. 
So I tell you the story not to boast about my grades from half a lifetime ago. In fact, while I'm very grateful for how far my education has brought me, that story is so cringeworthy to me now because really there are more important things than a high school math test on shapes and lines. No, I tell you this story because I think it speaks to a deep-seated struggle with which I continue to contend. I regularly joke about my lack of athleticism. Not that it's a joke, I'm truly very uncoordinated. Um, but when I was a kid, I did other things. I played instruments, and I never really played sports, especially not on a team. And while there were valid reasons um, at the time, one of the effects that I is that I was never forced to regularly lose and rise again. So my modus operandi, or my MO, is that I generally don't do anything unless I know there is a reasonably good chance of success. My aversion to failure is so strong that even when I received Pastor Watson's email asking if I would share my question, my initial reaction was, no, I don't, I don't think so, because what if I fail? <laughs> fail to come up with a question, fail to share something with which others can relate, fail to be clear enough or witty enough or God-honoring enough. Recently, I've been going through a leadership program at work, and our first offsite was a week-long session on knowing self. So we covered topics like authentic leadership and emotional intelligence and Brene Brown's well-researched power of vulnerability. I was so proud because I like to say that I'm an open book. You can always read my emotions on my face. I love sharing my feelings with other people. I was so succeeding at this vulnerability thing. <laughs> Uh, and then, as God has a way of doing, he quickly shot down my pride the following week. So I had been talking with a friend about this MMIQ, and I asked her if she would come listen to it. The response ended up being negative. And I knew about her long, complicated, and very fraught history with the institution of the church. So honestly, her response was objectively a reasonable one. But in the moment, I was so upset, I had to walk away from the conversation. So in processing the incident afterwards, I realized this. As an Enneagram type two, known as the helper, my core desires are to be helpful and to be loved. This also means that asking someone for help is unreasonably difficult. <laughs> what my friend viewed as a polite declination of an invitation, I saw as a resounding defeat in response to a very rare admittance that I actually do need help and support of others. I had first failed to keep up my armor, <laughs> and in doing so, I had also failed to get the support I craved. So, a double defeat, no wonder I was upset. So the circumstances of failure can look really different for everyone, but I think feeling is common. The feeling that of crushing loss, collapse, a coming to nothing. Failure for me feels a lot like, a little like heart surgery and a lot like rejection. That voice inside that says, Actually, you're not enough. You'll never be enough. You are unwanted and unloved, so you might as well not try. You see, I don't actually think that my struggle with the question, what if I fail, has eased since high school has just become better camouflaged. So I no longer take tests regularly, so the avoidance of failure is not as easily quantifiable. Instead, I now avoid failure, most often via selective vulnerability. If I don't admit need, then I will never feel like getting what I needed because I never expressed that I needed it in the first place. If I don't expose myself, then I'm sheltered from the prospect that maybe I feel failed or that I've already failed someone else. 
here I was thinking that I was so good at opening up, <laughs> but being vulnerable enough to say that I actually need other people and need their support is really hard. So knowing that, where do I go from here? So I knew I was speaking at church, so I was thinking maybe I should resolve this with a sound buddy verse like Joshua 1.9 about being strong and courageous, or 2 Timothy 1.7 about not being given a spirit of fear. And while those are all true, instead, I came across these verses. So 2 Chronicles 30, 18b to 20 says, But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord who is good pardon everyone who sets their heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, even if they are not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. This is not a sermon, but very quickly for some context, after King Solomon's death and a couple centuries of evil kings, Hezekiah ascended to the throne in Judah, and the Bible says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He removed idols and reopened God's temple. He restored worship to God and invited everyone to come and once again celebrate Passover. So people came across the land to celebrate, and many had not properly cleansed themselves before partaking in the Passover meal. So Hezekiah prayed to God on their behalf. God healed the people even though they had failed to do right by the letter of the law. Why? Because they had set their hearts on seeking God. I think I've made it clear that I don't like to fail. I don't think anyone does. And there are some ways in which my fear of failure, though what if I fail, has kept me from stepping out in faith. What these verses beg me to ask, though, is, so what if I fail? I have to think that when God looks down and sees our imperfect efforts and offerings, all the ways in which we have failed by other standards or more likely our own standards, what moves him to act is not how perfectly we have abided by his law, but our yearning to grow closer to him and his heart. I don't have this all figured out. I can stand here and tell you that despite our efforts, we'll always fail, and that's why we need Jesus. I can believe in my head that walking through failure is the only way to grow and that I am not any less loved when I fail because God's love is not contingent on the successes I have had. However, I assure you that as soon as I step away from this mic, my tendency will be to fight that truth and rebel against even the remote possibility of failing with every fiber of my being. So if you have figured out how to fail easily and well, please come pray over me during worship. <laughs> If not, um, and you two are navigating these murky waters, then maybe we can help each other out. Maybe then I could be a little more willing to ask for help, or I could step into a relationship not knowing how it will turn out. Or maybe one of you will drag me along to play a sport that I will fail at and lose in again and again and again. Often that question of what if I fail keeps me from acting, but we all know that failure in life is inevitable. So what if I fail? I pray that in my times of failure equally as much as in those times of triumphs, I will be able to say that through and in my failure, my heart was set on seeking God. Thank you all. Good morning, church. My name is Angel, and today my most important question is, Father, can you really hear me? 
often as a child, I would ask this question, wondering if God could really hear me. Often I would talk to him with no response. Or maybe he did respond, I just wasn't aware of his presence at the time. Growing up in a household where I was faced with emotional and physical abuse was traumatizing, as it should be for any child. It left me feeling isolated and vulnerable, questioning if God maybe even forgot about me. One Bible verse that really stuck with me over the years is Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my righteous hand. The Bible verse gets better, but I'm just going to stop here. <laughs> this verse is comforting me, to me because there were a lot of times where I was afraid and alone, and here he was talking to me through this verse. I just had to listen. The more I read his word was the more I got to know God. The more that I was comforted knowing that I had a forever father who was with me no matter what. I grew up with parents who really didn't believe in mental disorders, such as bipolar, depression, social anxieties, etc. To them, it was just called being a crybaby. I didn't know that I had a chemical imbalance going on in my brain. I just thought I was a really sad kid that, be, that had been dealt a bad deck of cards. I prayed and prayed and prayed, and nothing happened. I thought, maybe it's just not my time. So I just endured whatever came my way. I, I wouldn't say that I completely stopped praying, but I definitely stopped praying for a change. I figured this was all a part of his plan for my life. So when I did pray, I just thanked him. Growing up, I noticed that I didn't have a big family, and for some reason, I was isolated from the family that I did have. So one of my prayers growing up was to have a big family. Like, I prayed for this daily, and guess what? Years later, I have my own beautiful family. Did it go the traditional way I attended to marriage and kids? Nope. But that doesn't make my family any less special. God knew that I was missing a special kind of love since I was a kid, and he gave that to me. Pure love, like the love that God has for us. I started to see how much God loves us through my children. He definitely heard that prayer. In 2014, I began to be able to acknowledge when God was speaking to me. At the time, I was in an abusive relationship, and like most women, they stay. They stay because they're afraid, or sometimes they stay because they become used to the trauma. A turning point for me was during this particular physical incident. Um, I had contusions, scratches, and blood all over my face, and I was lying face down on the floor when my son screamed out, oh my God, oh my God, mommy's gonna die. Please don't, please don't let her die, God. Just hearing my child called out to God, not knowing who else to call, was life-changing. I had praying kids. They knew when to call on God. That following Sunday, the kids left out, and they said, I'll be back. I'm going to church. I said, church? Church in the evening? Weird, but okay. <laughs> I always prayed for God to protect my children and guide them towards him. And, and look at God, the kids found a church home while I was praying for a church home. God had started to reveal to me that it was time for me to leave my apartment. It, it was time to leave. 
And at this time, I just started to have full conversations with God. God, how? I'm working a part-time job. I have little money. I can't afford to move. But I knew that if I wanted my life to move towards a different direction, I needed to obey God. So I took a leap of faith. I went to Virginia Williams, which is a place to help you find housings. Since I was a domestic violence victim, I, became, I got placed. They placed us in a hotel, and I thought we were going to stay there. Um, I thought we were going to stay there, but I was told that we had to pack everything up because we were headed to D.C. General Family Shelter. I've heard so many horror stories about this place, from raccoons to bed bugs to the latest story, the, dis the disappearance of Alicia Rudd. To those who don't know about her story, she was a 10-year-old girl who was um, abducted by a janitor that befriended the mom. He ended up leaving the shelter, and Alicia Rudd was never returned. She is still a missing case to this day. This was not a place that I wanted to take my kids, especially not my daughters. There were times where it was so cold that I would have to bundle London because our room was ice cold. There she is, all bundled. <laughs> she was warm after that, though. <laughs> um, but God, I kept hearing God say to me, don't be afraid. I'm your God. I will help you. And at this time, the kids were attending Christ City, but um, they had missed about a month or so, and everyone was looking for them. <laughs> Um, the kids kept saying, Mom, Mom, we're missing church. We got to go back to church. Um, and a few members from CCC was doing um, outreach at D.C. General, and that's when they saw my kids. Um, I really didn't know that my kids were embedded into the CCC community, but they were. And they were just as important as everyone else in the church. My kids had a community of great people who genuinely cared for them. It always brings tears to my eyes because I can really feel God's love through our community. You know, sometimes when you go through things, sometimes no one is there but God. And he heard my prayers. I prayed and asked God to help, help me move to a particular area. And guess what? Today, I live in that exact area. Even though I was denied for the apartment, two months later, the landlord called back and said, hey, are you still interested? I wanted to say, well, didn't you deny me this apartment? <laughs> but I did not want the questions of God work. <laughs> My most important question was, Father, can you really hear me? And the answer is yes. He really heard me, and he still hear hears me. My life has been changing, maybe not in a rapid place, but I'm okay with that, and I'm grateful. Both my parents today tell me I'm so proud of the bond you have with God, and I'm so proud and happy that you found that church <laughs> because I can see a change in you. If it wasn't for God being there when I needed him the most, I honestly don't think that I would be here today. So I thank you, Father, for being there for me, for saving me, for being a protector, protecting my children from unseen dangers, for being a provider, feeding us when we had no money, wondering where the next meal will come from, for giving us shelter, and for blessing my family with this beautiful community that I have in front of me now. Thank you, CCC, for being so great and being an inspiration.
You guys are hard to follow. That's good. Hey, my name is David Nishizaki. Uh, when I was asked to share, it didn't take me too long to realize that there was uh, one question that I've asked countless times and continue to still ask today. Uh, my most important question is, God, where were you? Of the many times I've asked my most important question, there are three standout stories I want to share with you this morning. Uh, the context of all three of those stories is me in a Christian counseling setting, using a prayer exercise, asking the question, God, where were you? These three stories are significant moments because my questions were answered, uh, and the answers changed me and continue to shape my life today. So story one, uh, as a young adult, I started noticing my life wasn't what I wanted. I wanted something different, but I struggled to do anything differently than what I was doing. And so through a season of counseling with a, a friend of mine who's a pastor, I was able to identify that I was living out of the belief system that my worth only came from what I did, and that my worth was only attached to people's approval and opinion of me. So I was able to identify that, but that wasn't enough. I, I needed freedom. And so I was, introduced into, I was introduced to a prayer exercise where I would invite God to speak into my experience, show me perspectives through the lens of God's truth, and so there I was with my friend in his office uh, on the second floor of our church in Redding, California. My mind was flooded with memories of very negative childhood experiences and relationships. And I asked, God, where, where were you in all that? Uh, and in that moment, I could see clearly myself as a nine-year-old alone in my room, sitting cross-legged on the floor with my face in my hands, and I was crying. I was, I was sad that I was unnoticed, that I was unloved, and I was so desperately wanting approval and acceptance, and so I asked again, God, where were you? And then there he was. He was there right next to me. The father reassuringly sitting next to me, saying, David, I love you. And even more, I like you. You don't have to do anything to earn my love. And in that moment, for the first time in my life, I felt the deep affirmation of the father's love that gives me freedom from insecurity and, and the need for others' approval. There was a shift that day, and I began to embrace and live out an identity that's rooted in Jesus. Story number two. Uh, the second story is also about God redeeming my identity, because in, in junior high and high school, for about two years, I was teased pretty consistently for the way that I looked. And it didn't have to do with my height, it didn't have to do with my weight, it didn't have to do with the fact that I had acne, uh, or that I had braces and was told to wear a headgear and neckgear at the same time. It had nothing to do with that, <laughs> you would think. No, unfortunately, it had to do with the shape of my eyes and my last name and the country that my grandfather was born in. 
things about me that were racial markers or identifiers that caused me to look differently than the rest of my classmates that, that, were, that I was in a majority white school. Those experiences shaped me very negatively for a very long time. It caused me to hate the way I looked, things about myself that I could not change. It really caused me to distance myself from anything Asian and tires, tirelessly try to just fit in, but unfortunately that never worked. I'm biracial, and as a kid, no one had taught me that word. For the majority of my life, I've been called half. Half white, half Japanese. And by always being half, I have never been whole. And so again, I found myself asking God, where were you in all of that? And so with my pastor friend, again, we prayed. And I asked God, where were you? I've got to know. I want to know. And this time, in a very specific memory, from eighth grade, I was at school by a bench where I'd eat lunch. There were six or so of my schoolmates circled around me, and they were yelling at me, throwing insults at me, calling me names, some even threatening to hit me and punch me, and I cried out, God, where were you? And almost instantly, I saw Jesus. He was between me and the group, almost using his body to shield me from insults, and he grabbed me by the face. He looked me in the eye and said, they're wrong. I think you're amazing. I, I, I love you. I like the way you look because I made you, and you're perfect and fearfully and wonderfully made. It really is amazing how quick my perspective could shift by seeing such a negative experience like that through a gospel lens, by seeing Jesus in my story. That's the freedom that I've wanted, and I've never experienced that type of freedom. Or I had never experienced that type of freedom before. Jesus says that, I have something to be proud of and nothing to be ashamed of because I am created in his image. The last story I want to share of me asking my most important question is a little bit different, less about my identity, but just as significant and by far the most recent. Uh, some of you know, maybe uh, a lot of you don't, Aliyah and I lived in Latin America for five years working as missionaries. And so just over three years ago, we were living in Mexico, and we had uh, very good friends of ours that were living in Southern California, still do, come down to visit us for the weekend. And so every year in our city where we lived, there was a, an international off-road race that started and finished in our town. It was a whole big event, and uh, we thought it would be fun to take our friends and their three young boys to watch. And as we were walking from one viewing area to another, a race truck lost control, went off course, and struck and instantly killed our friend's oldest son, who was only eight years old. That acutely traumatic experience of loss was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And in the emotional chaos of guilt and shock and sadness and grief, I quickly began asking God, God, where were you? But I had no desire 
or patience for an answer. After six months of my only emotion being anger and not wanting an answer at all and feeling ready to quit ministry and maybe even Jesus altogether, I was finally able to ask my question again because Aaliyah and I were almost at the end of spending two weeks at an intensive counseling center in Colorado. I was willing to give God a chance to answer my question and perhaps show me some of his perspective. And so in a quaint little mountain town in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, six months removed from the accident and over a thousand miles away from where it happened, I found just enough faith to ask God, God, where were you? And I heard him say I was there and I was heartbroken. And unlike the two other stories where I had an insight into my identity, God's response didn't have anything to do with me or my character and it had everything to do with his character. God was just as sad as we were. And because of that truth, because of that realization, I was able to then release the very tight grip I held of holding God behind bars in my head and in my heart because of something I blamed him for. I could finally begin a grieving process and a healing process where I allowed Jesus to be part. So like I said, it did not take me long at all to realize what my most important question has been. I've asked this question more times than I can remember. Not all of them in counseling settings. I still ask from different places with different motivations and different attitudes. I ask wanting an answer and I ask not wanting one. I ask accusingly in painful dark days and I ask, or I try to ask in good times too. I try to ask by faith to know better how God is at work in my life and yet still there are many times when asking God, where were you? Or God, where are you? Is about the only question that my faith can muster. I want to end with thankfulness. I'm thankful that God hears me. I'm thankful God is present in my sorrow and shares in my sadness. I'm thankful that Jesus can handle my wrestling and that he invites it. I'm thankful that he has a better perspective on all my life's experiences and that he's willing to share those perspectives with me when, I'm at, when I ask. I'm thankful he has grace and love and truth for me. And lastly today, I am especially thankful that he allows me to ask my questions. I love this church. <laughs> um, our friends have given us a gift this morning, and it feels like that every year, you know, just um, they've given us a gift in their vulnerability and their stories um, and in their questions. That's not like a thing I think that we do is stand up in front of our church on Sunday and be like, I have these major questions <laughs> about God um, that I don't have solid answers to. Um, that's a gift. I think our friends have given us a gift. Um, each week that we gather here together, um, we have teaching time and, um, 
and then we always have some time for a response. It's important to, to sit with it for a minute and, um, and to, to look for the Lord um, in ourselves and, and with each other. Um, and so this morning, obviously, this has been a little bit different, um, but I want to encourage you. We're, we're going to have some time um, to respond, and um, that may look different for each of us this morning. Um, if something has stirred in you this morning, if, um, if one of these stories has stirred in you, um, you're welcome to, to stay where you are, to, um, to open up yourself to God as much as you can. You're welcome to, um, to seek out one of the speakers this morning. Um, you can ask them to pray for you. You can pray over them. Um, you can seek them out after the service as well. Um, the, 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 the thing that we do to respond together, though, as a body, which is so significant because we're not together every day. On Sundays is the time that our community is together um, in this room. And so the one thing that we always do in response is um, we take communion together. We observe communion. And um, in, even in this, I think I'm just so reminded this morning as we, as we kind of turn towards response and turn towards um, taking communion together that um, what, we, what we remember in taking communion and um, taking a piece of bread, which represents Jesus' body, um, and dipping it in the cup, which represents Jesus' blood, is that Jesus, we, we don't remember um, Jesus' death uh, because Jesus came to give us certainty. Jesus came to give us life. And life doesn't ever guarantee certainty. Um, I think that we get in this place where it feels like, um, unless I have all my questions answered, I'm not walking in the, the life that God is offering me. And that's just not true. So this morning, um, as a community, as we take communion together and we remember um, what Jesus has done, who God is, um, and we hold these stories of our siblings together, um, I pray, that's my prayer, that we, would, that we would recognize that there is one who has been here since the beginning, who offers us, um, who offers us not certainty, offers us a journey, offers us a story, and offers us presence. I know that God is with us this morning and, and with us in each of these stories um, in our questions. Um, so that's what I'm praying for us this morning as we, as we have communion together. God, I thank you for, thank you for, um, for stories. Thank you for community. Thank you for the courage and the vulnerability of our friends who have shared this morning. Thank you for the way that um, even, their, even in their uncertainty, um, even in their ongoing questions, that they have pointed us to you this morning. Thank you that you have met us here. Thank you that your presence um, is always here, even when we don't recognize it. Thank you that you walk with us through failure. Thank you that you walk with us through hardship. Thank you that you walk with us through questions. God, and we're trying to believe that this morning, that you are with us, that we won't do things perfectly. Um, we don't even really know exactly what we mean when we say that. Um, but as much as we can say, God, um, we believe. Help our unbelief, God. Allow us to recognize your presence. Thank you for your son. 
Thank you for the life that you offer us. Oh God, help us to walk in that, in that life. To not be held back by our questions, but to just bring them with us. We are grateful. And we are open to you as much as we can be. Amen.